Welcome to In the Spotlight. I'm Abigail Pogrebin. Rabbi Rachel Isaacs is the Executive Director of the Center for Small Town Jewish Life at Colby College and the Dorothy Bibby Levine Alphon Chair in Jewish Studies there. She is also the spiritual leader of Beth Israel Congregation in Waterville, Maine. She was ordained in 2011 by the Jewish Theological Seminary in New York City, where she studied as a Wexner Graduate Fellow. In 2016, Rabbi Isaacs delivered the final Hanukkah benediction of the Obama administration at the White House. She lives in Waterville, Maine with her wife, Melanie Weiss, and their two daughters. And Rachel is a potato farmer. Welcome, Rabbi Rachel Isaacs, to the broadcast. It's great to have you. Thanks so much for having me. So it matters where you are because it's very much at the core of what we're gonna talk about today. You are the executive director of the Center for Small Town Jewish Life at Colby College, and you are in a small town, uh, Waterville, Maine. So can you tell us kind of why you're there and how that is central to your rabbinate? So I never anticipated that I'd spend any part of my life in Maine or in small town America. I grew up uh, in the New York metropolitan area went to college in Boston, and spent any time outside of those two areas in Jerusalem and Tel Aviv. Um, but I was placed in Waterville, Maine as a student rabbi in my fifth year of the Jewish Theological Seminary and began working with Colby College Hillel and Beth Israel Congregation in Waterville, Maine. And what ended up happening was I fell in love with this place. And what I saw there was a lot of potential and a lot of passion. And when I was starting my rabbinate, I thought to myself, this is going to be a beautiful and fascinating place to start my rabbinate and to grow as a rabbi. And over the course of the past 13 years, Waterville, Maine went from a place where I wanted to start my career to a place where ultimately I'd get married, have my children, and ultimately found the Center for Small Town Jewish Life so that other people could see the beauty and potential of small town synagogues and small town America, and that I could do my part in making sure that synagogues and Jewish communities like those in central Maine had the resources they needed in order to thrive, and also giving these communities the attention they deserved to show their unique beauty and potential in creating a new American Jewish future. When you say you fell in love with it, with your first experience, can you tell us a little bit, can you be a little bit more specific about what captivated you? So I'm a pretty basic person in the respect that it doesn't take much to make me happy. And uh, every time I would- It doesn't arrive, sound very Jewish. I, I guess that's why I ended up uh, in a small town. There, there, was, there was a connection there. Um, Every time I would land in Portland, Maine from New Jersey or New York, I was at JTS at the time, um, a different congregant would pick me up. They didn't send me a car service. They didn't send me a bus ticket. A different congregant would pick me up at the airport personally every time. And Tiffany, the synagogue president at the time, would make sure that whoever was picking me up brought a gift. And so sometimes it was blueberry muffins, sometimes oh. it was banana bread, sometimes it was hand-knit mittens. Wow. And I was just like, these people are great. 
And, you know, I grew up in the kind of community with like a lot of love and a lot of Yiddishkeit. That's why I chose to become a rabbi. But people are not picking each other up at airports. <laughs> and they're certainly not baking things for the rabbinical student. With mittens. You know, it's just like, that was not the Jewish community I grew up in. If you wanted something, you paid somebody else to do it. And I was like, this is actually really cool and really beautiful. And the weekend I decided that I wanted to stay in Waterville, the woman who is our synagogue secretary to this day and has been synagogue secretary since the 1960s, her name is Liz Geller. Her son was playing in a pickup band at Mainly Brews, the bar in downtown Waterville. And all of the women on the board came with me and bought me beer while we watched her son play 90s covers, you know, and all sorts of hits. And I was with women in their, you know, 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s. And we were all cheering for David in his 40s. And I was like, this is nothing like any other Jewish community I've ever been part of, but I love it. Mm. And I decided to stay. I know you don't want to knock the larger congregations that have more resources in larger cities. But I, I do think that for those of us who are a part of those uh, communities, there's often a blind spot as to what it's like in rural Jewish life. Can you just paint the picture and maybe fill in some of the blanks of what you see of where those blind spots are? I mean, first of all, just that we exist, right? It, very often when I say I'm the rabbi in Waterville, Maine, people say there are Jews in Maine, like maybe in Portland, but there are Jews, first of all, we exist. And according to our estimates, one in seven American Jews lives in a community outside a major metro area. So it's not an insignificant number of Jews. So I think that's the most important thing. It's important to understand that there are Jewish communities where it is a heroic feat to make minion, to get those 10 Jews there, to make services happen, to pay the heating bills. And yet the Jews that do keep those synagogues going are deeply and profoundly committed with their time, with their energy, with the financial resources that they have. And as a result, those communities, communities like mine in Waterville, produce incredible Jewish leadership. So if you look at the kids who've grown up in my Hebrew school, I think 80 to 90% of them, the last time I counted, have ended up on the Hillel boards when they ended up going to college. You know, none of them are casually Jewish. You can't be casually Jewish in a place like Waterville. You're either totally opt out or you're really committed. And you know you need to make it with your own hands. So that produces a certain type of leadership that has actually floated up in many ways to the top of the American Jewish community today and if you look at a lot of leaders in the American Jewish community, a lot of them did grow up in communities like Waterville because they know what it is to take ownership for their uh, Jewish life. So on one hand, these are communities with scarcity in terms of numbers and critical mass and financial resources, but also have an abundance of passion, commitment, and dedication. And I know uh, you were interviewed by Rabbi Elliot Cosgrove of Park Avenue Synagogue in a wonderful episode of his podcast. And you said, um, when you were describing what it means to be a small town Jew, you can't pay somebody else to do it and you can't assume it will be there when you need it. And you were talking about that in terms of holiday preparation, 
um, maintaining kashrut, preparing for Passover. Can you give us a little bit, paint a picture of just what it means to get kosher meat, if that's important to you, of what it means to prepare for a holiday and you can't walk down the street to Zabar's. Um, that's part of the commitment you're talking about, the extra elbow grease that's required. Absolutely. So sometimes let's say, let's talk about Passover prep in Waterville, Maine. There are three kosher kitchens in Waterville, at Colby College Hillel, at my house, and at the synagogue. My wife koshers the synagogue kitchen with two or three members of the congregation and one or two members of the Hillel. Then our director of Jewish student life, the three or four students and one or two congregants, koshers the synagogue kitchen. And then my kids and I, with my wife, kosher our kitchen. And these are all, when you say those who did it at Hillel, Colby, those are volunteers every year? Yeah, those are students and congregants. So we've created one multi-generational Jewish community and both show up for each other. So what I'll do is I'll put in an order through Grow and Behold or the Butchery in Brookline. So either it comes up on a bus to Portland and we pick it up there, or we get it all shipped in the mail up to Waterville. Thank God that wasn't possible 20 years ago. The internet's an amazing thing. We kosher the kitchens ourselves. And then in order to save money, because if we got those meals catered, that would be our entire yearly budget. So we have to cook it ourselves. And one of the most beautiful things that we do is all of the haroset is prepared by my congregants and my students together, as mm. is the chicken, you know, as are every single individual Seder plate. And I'll tell one story about that because it's hard. By the time we get to Seder, we're exhausted. It is hard. We served Seder and Pesach meals for over 200 people in Waterville, Maine, all kosher for Passover. That requires an incredible amount of organization, dedication, time, money, energy. But there was this incredible moment when we were at, we do one Seder on campus and one at the synagogue. And we try and get cross-pollination from both the synagogue and the Hillel. But there was this moment where one of our Hillel students who was having a really difficult year sort of got adopted by Mel, my wife, and a few of the other members of the synagogue. And this beautiful 20-year-old boy who was not used to cooking chopped a lot of walnuts and a lot of apples for haroset for over 200 people. And when he was sitting at Seder next to one of the congregants, I was walking by and the student said to that congregant, I made that haroset. And the congregant said, it's delicious. Thank you so much. And so that Pesach meal really is a korban. It's a sacrifice in the most serious way because every bite you eat took hours of elbow grease from a community that extends from age two to age 92. And that's what it takes to make every holiday and every Shabbat happen. But when you interview the Colby students who've graduated 10 years ago, they remember every single relationship that they developed with a local community. They remember what it meant to become a Jewish adult through the experience of being a small town Jew for four years. And almost every congregant can say, there was a Hillel student that was the bar mitzvah tutor for my kid. 
or that I remember preparing latkes with them before Hanukkah and what a gift those students were to our local community. So small town Jewish life, a lot of planning. Nothing can be done at the last minute. Nothing is ever perfect. Nothing is ever catered. But if you're paying attention, you know there was an incredible amount of heart that went into everything we did. And are there moments when the building's falling apart and it's cold and you don't, you know, you're looking at all the food stuff that has to be taken care of, and I'm sure there's a trillion other issues, that you say to yourself, it doesn't need to be this hard. I could go somewhere else. Yeah, I mean, there are those moments, especially when I first came to Waterville, the community has grown significantly, the hill has grown significantly. But in my first two to three years especially, there were times that I would actually like come home crying. And I'm like, I just want to go to back to Park Slope. I just want to go back to the Park Slope Jewish Center. I just want to sit in a community of 100 other Jews who know the tunes, who have my back. You know, I want to go to Glotmart. I want to go to Weiss's Bakery. I want that experience. I miss it. Um, and there are still sometimes those moments where things are going really well. And then all of a sudden, you know, we have eight people. And I have to say, El Melech Ne'eman. You know, God is the true judge before the Shema because we didn't make Minion. And it makes me feel like a personal failure. It makes me feel sad for my kids. But honestly, those Shabbatot are much less common than they were when I started. And what I've learned is that you know, God is a loyal friend. God is there. And the role that I'm playing for those eight people who showed up is massive. And I've had to learn how to focus on the joy of being with the people who are there instead of the pain of the people who aren't. And that's what's required. Um, but it is a tremendous sacrifice. And I would be lying if I said, I didn't need those yearly trips to Israel and New York sometimes to keep me going to fill up my cup so that I can keep on serving here. So the Center for Small Town Jewish Life, can you just encapsulate what it does so people understand and can they support it if they want to? Absolutely. The Center for Small Town Jewish Life is about providing the strategies and resources that small town Jewish communities need in order to thrive both in Maine and nationwide. So the way in which we've created a sustainable model for Jewish life in Maine in our small towns is by thinking of ways to convene all of these little Jewish communities into one cohesive, well-resourced whole. So in Maine, what that means is a fall Shabbaton that brings together all the Jewish college students in Maine to experience the best of Jewish music, whether it's Neshama Karlbach, Alana Arian, Joey Wiesenberg, we'll bring up these great Jewish musicians, and then we'll have like 200 people singing and dancing together. And 200 people singing and dancing to Jewish music in Maine probably feels like 5,000 in New York City. It's like huge, and it gives you this energy and this sense of connection. Or the main conference for Jewish life, where we have between three and 400 people that will come together for a Limud-style conference that does traditional Jewish learning, but also shares strategies 
for supporting small town Jewish institutions and creates community among people who are doing the work of sustaining small town Jewish life. What's been so exciting over the past two years is that it isn't just Jews from Presque Isle down to Biddeford, which by the way is like six hours top to bottom in Maine, or from Avon, Maine to Belfast, Maine, which is another three hours. We're not just bringing people from Maine, we're bringing small town Jews from outer lying islands in Hawaii. We're bringing small town Jews from Chico, California. We're bringing small town Jews from Columbia, Missouri. So what we're doing is we're creating a nationwide movement and network of Jews that can fill each other's cups by exchanging best practices and by giving each other the Torah that we love, that we know, that we um, have found useful reducing the sense of isolation, increasing the feeling of abundance and pride in who we are, so that these little communities can continue to survive and thrive, which is all the more important at this moment, because as major metros become more and more unaffordable, and also with the effects of climate change, more and more Americans, many of them being Jewish, are gonna be moving to places like Maine, Many more Americans, some of them Jewish, are gonna to move to places where they can grow their own food or just where they can afford a home. So we're really setting the foundation for what inevitably will be an American Jewish future that is more diffuse and is more DIY. So COVID, did that also change this landscape significantly? Are there Hugely. more small town Jews now? Absolutely. The amount, the number of Jews that came to Maine, Vermont, New Hampshire, Western Massachusetts, from places like Boston, New York, DC, and Miami was huge. And we see that a lot, especially in Portland, Maine, for example. You saw a huge amount of growth in the Jewish communities of Southern Maine. And slowly but surely, some of them are moving north because there are only so many houses in Portland. And so we're seeing huge growth and great diversification of Jewish communities in Northern New England. And the same thing is happening from what I understand in the Pacific Northwest. So people are going to come to places where you have land, clean air, and clean water. That's gonna affect the American future and the American Jewish future moving forward. So much of what you talk about, Rabbi Isaacs, is uh, equity and the issues, the financial pressures of Jewish life. I mean, there's the there's the financial pressures of life, period. But also, assuming that everyone can go to Israel or keep kosher or have a new dress for Rosh Hashanah, whatever the kind of norms are in the Jewish world, can you kind of sensitize us to some of what we're missing in terms of these disparities? You know, so many people in my congregation desperately want to go to Israel, and they desperately want to go because they're the only Jewish kid or the only Jewish adult in their workplace or the only Jewish kid at school. They're so isolated as Jews, they experience a lot of um, kind of social anti-Semitism without the backing of a huge community, and they want to go someplace where they can feel normal. 
but they're the Jews that have the fewest financial resources and the fewest social connections to know how to go. So when I took my congregation to Israel, because I was deeply committed to giving my congregants the same experience, it was so important to me, you know, so much of why I'm the Jew I am today is because my parents took me to Israel as a child. I studied abroad at Ben Gurion University in the early 2000s. I wanted to give my congregants a taste of the place that had such an impact on the Jew that I am. I fundraised so that not a single congregant would be turned away for lack of ability to pay. And we only stayed at two and three star hotels and we had very few fleshig meat meals. So I had to work very hard with my Israeli organizers to keep costs as low as possible. I had to fundraise from people with means, many of whom lived outside of Maine, to subsidize it so that everybody could go. And I combined my congregation in Waterville with another congregation in Auburn so that we had a critical mass to keep the price low, because the more people you bring will lower the collective cost. And through that, I could bring 50 Mainers, 90% of whom had never been to Israel, to wow. Israel for the first time. But when I told that story to a colleague in Lexington, Massachusetts, he said to me, Rachel, never once when I've brought my community to Israel did I think about how cost impacted who could come. And for me, that's always the number one question I ask in any activity I plan. May it be the cost of Passover Seder, a trip to Israel, or attending the main conference for Jewish life. Amazing. And, and just in terms of things like Jewish camp, um, you have talked about how there's also an assumption there that it's good for every Jewish kid to go. And all the research, as I don't have to tell you, says that when you want to look at Jewish continuity or kind of rootedness, it often comes from the camp experience. Can you address how a small town Jew necessarily goes if they want to go or maybe shouldn't? So it's an interesting point. Maine has lots of Jewish summer camps. Usually they cost between six and $8,000 a year to attend. The per capita you know, family income for a family in Waterville, Maine is between 40 and $50,000 a year. So Maine is a state filled with Jewish camps that most Jewish Mainers cannot afford to attend. As a result of that, the Center for Small Town Jewish Life created its own day camp that we put on for one to two weeks a year, depending on the year, that costs $5 a day. Um, that is staffed by Hebrew students from Colby College. Now, there are sorts, all sorts of scholarships through the National Ramah Commission, through Federation, through the Foundation for Jewish Camp that will pay for one year of Jewish camp for American Jewish kids. But sometimes it's hard for them to continue. Sometimes they can't afford to get there. Sometimes their parents can't pay to take off work to get them there. And then the other tricky thing about it is about class and not money which is that even if we can get the money to get them there, when they don't have the right clothes, when they don't have the right cultural references, when they can't do the same kind of Jewish geography, when they don't understand even what a private school is, 
that can be incredibly difficult for small town Jews that even the wealthy members of my community, that might, their parents might make the same amount of money as a Jew from New York or New Jersey. They still go to Jewish camp or even to Hillel when they go to college. And culturally, they just feel like, if this is what being Jewish is, I don't have a place here because I'm not wearing the right clothes. I don't have the right cultural reference points. And so I don't know how to fit in here. So if I'm going to ask you, Rachel, to be blunt, would you say, if you're asked, are the well-resourced Jewish communities in America doing enough for the small town synagogues or Jewish communities, what would your answer be? I don't think that the larger synagogues or the mainstream Jewish institutions are doing everything they can to support small town synagogues. I think part of it is at the Center for Small Town Jewish Life, the work that we're doing building ecosystems of rural Jewish communities that can thrive, we need support from major Jewish funders, not just to pilot those programs, but to expand them and fund them in the ways that they need to, to really thrive. I think that the entire American Jewish community, everything that I'm bringing out about class is not unique to small town Jewish communities, actually. Small town Jewish communities just bring it to the fore. I think there needs to be a larger discussion at every level of Jewish life in the denominations, federations, Hillel's, thinking about class in ways that create totally equitable pathways that no matter where you live or how much money you have, that the important thing is that you come as you are with what you have and not being able to pay the bill. And we are losing and have lost so many committed Jews or Jews that wanted connection because cost has been a barrier that needs to be eliminated to draw people in, to draw in that passion, that talent, and that interest. So part of it is money, right? I mean, part of it is actually simply enough. There are so many Jewish foundations that as a matter of policy won't give money to synagogues. I'm like, why? When you're in a small town, that's the only Jewish institution there is. There are so many Jewish foundations that think it's not cool or innovative to pay a heating bill or pay salary support for rabbis that feel committed to serving small town communities. Why? The Legacy Heritage Foundation brought me to Waterville and it changed the course of my life. It changed the course of Waterville, Maine for Jews and non-Jews alike. And it changed the course of Maine Jewish history. Paying one rabbinical student to serve this small community. Why does that program no longer exist? Mm. I think part of it is the philanthropic and the institutional landscape in the American Jewish community needs to be okay with long-term funding of things that might not be chic, but are actually the bread and butter of keeping small town Jewish communities alive. And if we're talking about equity in all of its forms, we need to include class and geography in that discussion. And that means fulfilling the basic needs of small town Jewish communities so that they can do the higher level transformative thinking of what it means to reinvent themselves for a new Jewish future in the way that successful large synagogues have the capacity to do. And at the Center for Small Town Jewish Life, 
we're doing that work with our Macomb program, not only providing cash assistance to communities in our network, but also giving them the basic skills that they need to get security grants, to learn how to put together a synagogue budget, to learn how to keep a rabbi through good times and bad, so that they can do the higher level adaptive thinking of reinventing their synagogues for the 21st century. We're doing that work at the center for little communities in Maine, but now we're doing that work across the country. What we need is folks supporting the institutions that are fulfilling the basic and the long-term strategic needs of small communities and not sending them the message that all they can expect from their future is decline and decay. Which, by the way, is not just the message that small town Jews are receiving from those in large communities. It's the message that small town Americans are receiving. And that's something I would have never understood had I spent my whole life in the New York metropolitan area. And as the result of living and sending my kids to school in Waterville, Maine, I understand some of the bigger issues that are plaguing American society vis-a-vis -vis class, geography, and political division in a way I never would have understood had I never left urban America. So speaking of what you left, Rachel, there have been a number of, of profiles about you. Uh, you've been in the spotlight um, for a number of years now, deservedly. Um, one article said that you have no desire to be a poster person um, as a Jewish lesbian rabbi, but that you did, you did feel your ordination, quote, represents a revolutionary moment in Jewish history. So I know you have humility about this, but can you give us a little bit of perspective as to how new it was? Because you seem so young to have anything be a revolutionary still. <laughs> but well, thank you. <laughs> I'm 40 now, so I'm wow. old enough to... I'm old enough to study That's Kabbalah. Fine. Still young. I came. I came to Waterville at 27. Um, so it's age been 27. Age at age 27. So yeah. I've been here for 13 years. It was revolutionary. I mean, look, it's still difficult to be a woman in the conservative movement, and like, I actually still think it's harder to be a woman than to be openly gay. That's a different conversation. Um, but yeah, when I was at J, it was me and three other openly queer people, one of whom ended up transferring to the reform movement. So it was very lonely. You know, I went to Wellesley College, where it's very normal to be gay. Then I went to the Hebrew Union College for my first two years. And that was my first exposure to reform Judaism. And even though I wasn't a reformed Jew, I actually loved how inclusive and joyful it was at HUC. And that's a gift I still carry with me today from the reform movement. And coming to JTS was really rough. They weren't prepared for the ways in which they needed to change in order to support GLBT students and ordinees. You know, when I said to the seminary, I'm going to be ordained, what are you doing with the congregations to prepare them for this reality? They said, Rachel, you're smart, you'll do fine. And the truth of the matter, that wasn't true. And part of the reason I ended up in Waterville and I stayed was that placement was really tough. Almost none of the women in my class got full-time pulpits. And when I ultimately needed to decide where I was going to end up, 
I went to the board of Beth Israel and I said, I've fallen in love with you. I don't know if you can afford me, but will you accept me for who I am? Because you've gotten to know me for a whole year. And they said, if you want to be here, we'll make it work. And so my colleague, Rabbi Dr. David Friedrich, who's also a conservative rabbi, worked with the provost at the time, who was a camper ma'alam, with my synagogue board, and they scraped together a basic salary. And when there was one person in the community who objected to me being gay, there was one woman on the board. She was 86 years old at the time. Her name was Mert Wallman. May her memory be for a blessing. My youngest daughter is named after her. And when somebody came before the board and said, I don't think Waterville, Maine is ready for a lesbian rabbi, she just looked at that person and said, she's young, she's breathing, we love her, she loves us, and that's the end of the discussion. And at Beth Israel Congregation, when Mert Wallman says something, it that happens. is the end of the discussion. And that's why I'm still in Waterville today. So there actually is a connection between me being gay and ending up in this synagogue. But I want to draw an important point to this. Waterville is a politically purple city in a politically purple state. When I was at JTS, everybody said to me, you won't be able to be employed any place outside of Boston, New York, or LA. But when I went to those communities, I was told repeatedly, our community is not ready for an openly gay rabbi. And it was a congregation that was pretty much 50% Republican, 50, I mean, Maine Republican, but still Republican, 50% Republican, 50% Democratic. They were the ones who voted me in as their rabbi, and they were the ones that scraped the bottom of the coffers to pay for me to come. Rabbi Rachel Isaacs, thank you for everything you're doing and have done in Waterville, Maine, and for small town Jewish life all over the country. Uh, it's a privilege to talk to you. Thank you all for being part of this. We are putting on the website how to find out more. In the meantime, I'm Abigail Pogrebin for In the Spotlight. Thank you for being with us. Thank you.